This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening, folks. We got a pleasant Sunday evening here. State of the U podcast. We're bringing you an episode today where we're going to talk about all kinds of things. We're going to get into the NFL draft. We're going to talk some Canes um, football. We may talk some Canes baseball. We're going to talk NBA playoffs, boxing. You name it, we got it. We may even take some live callers today. Uh, joining me on the podcast today is Mr. Chris Hayes. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. I got my uh, little scoop in baseball, went to the Nats game today, so I feel very caught up knowing a lot about the Phillies which probably most people don't want to know, and then uh, Nat Baseball, which has been underwhelmingly uh, unimpressive so far. So you're, for the for the callers that don't know you too well, because you're kind of new to our, our State of the Youth staff, you're up in Washington, D.C., right? I am. I'm in the uh, D.C. area. I moved up here a couple of years ago. So uh, trying to it's one of those where you learn more about the sports market and things like that than you uh, really ever knew. Uh, definitely know a lot more about the Washington Redskins than I ever anticipated and just kind of the bigger deal that they are in this area compared to being down in Florida and just being like, whatever, that's a team up north that I don't really follow and doesn't seem to do well. So what's the deal with the Nationals, man? They got all the talent in the world. When are they going to put it together? I don't know. I mean, it was, we saw Strasburg uh, pitch today. I mean, he went he went eight innings. Uh, well, sorry, he went seven point uh, three or sorry, seven point one or something like that. Uh, but got to the eighth inning with one run. I mean, I think it starts there. I mean, that rotation's just got to be better. Um, and then I think they're one of those where they're just uh, they're kind of set instead of experimenting and moving around. They're just kind of that old school baseball team that's just going to kind of keep it. And the uh, it, just the lineups that they have that they started with coming out of spring training and hope it works itself out, which is fine because there's no reason to usually panic. But at the same time, you know, I read an article today about how they should uh, put Bryce Harper at the top of the lineup just to you know kind of jumpstart stuff. And I mean, I agree with that. I think it's just one of those they're supposed to be dominant pitching and hitting wise. They really haven't done both until uh, about today with Strasburg. And then uh, I think a, a little a little mix up in the lineup would not hurt them. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things play out with them this year. I'm a Yankee fan, and I'm completely pessimistic about, one, uh, their rotation staying healthy, with you know, especially with Tanaka, who pitched a really good game last night in, in Tampa. And, of course, um, Pineda, who's been injured, you know, the whole time, his whole stay. And especially with their lineup being as old, it's uh, it's I don't think it's their year. I, I really like the Red Sox in Baltimore at the top of that division. But I digress. I, I want to get on to some Kane stuff. Um, one of our senior staff members, Cam Underwood, just dropped an article, and the article is about the reports of Miami seeking a waiver to get Gerald Willis III immediately eligible uh, at, at UM next year. Uh, for those who aren't following, Gerald Willis III is a former five-star recruit who spent a year with Florida before being dismissed and uh, transferred to UM. So as for the laws of the NCAA, he has to sit out a year as a transfer, but Miami's trying to get around that with a little-known clause that 
I was just reading, Cam did a great job describing it. Um, it's called the runoff waiver. And reading his article, it seems like, honestly, this is a long shot, but I, I like where the coaching staff's going. Uh, Willis III is potentially a difference maker at defensive tackle slash defensive end for Miami. Um, the guy's run into some trouble. He's gotten into some fist fights with some teammates down in uh, Gainesville, but certainly a very talented player. And with as much as Miami has riding on the line uh, this year, uh, coming off of last year's disaster, a six and seven season, I, I think it's a good gamble. What do you think, Chris? No, I agree. I mean, that definitely tells you something about the impact you think that uh, he could make if they're going to willingly uh, kind of put this, take this risk, and go after this waiver. Um, and I mean. Again, Cam did a great job, and the best example, obviously, is Doyle Green-Beckham uh, from a couple of years ago with Missouri and then to Oklahoma. Um, you know, he was obviously – Oklahoma wanted him right away because he's such a difference maker. And it really only seems you're going to try and get this if you think that your guy's a really big difference maker. If he's not a big difference maker, if he's not a guy that you think is going to impact right away, I mean, you're kind of fine. Like, all right, we'll live with what – we need. I mean, it does worry me. Maybe they think they need that much help at the D-tackle position for next year, that they need to get this guy on the field immediately. Um, but for me, I mean, I think they're pretty decent on the defensive line for the next year or two. I, it's just one that I think that it's a good risk and see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see how this kid goes. I'm always a little worried when, you know, guys have had a lot of history in their background of being problem teammates and off-the-field issues, you know, it's kind of one or the other. It seems like he can get by, but it seems it's both. Uh, I'm, I'm a little worried that he can't be able to keep himself on the field, but we'll see what happens. But I like it. I mean, it's worth the risk and see what happens here. Yeah, his history is a little checkered for sure. I, I just wonder, I mean, there has to be a sense of, sense of urgency with this coaching staff at this point of the game. I think um, that's a great point. Yeah, the, the quote unquote cloud that's been hanging over uh, UM since Al Golden arrived is gone. I, I mean, we can go on and on, and uh, I'm sure much of our fan base uh, has a lot to say about um, you know the excuses that have been presented for why the team's been mediocre during Al Golden's tenure. Uh, I think last year was a major disappointment with all the talent they were able to put on the field. I think they were very close to turning the corner last year. The FSU game seemed to be, you know, they're unraveling. They're completely unraveling. It was almost their greatest moment, but it was also they're unraveling. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, that game changed the season by far. I mean, it's, I think any fan, coach, or player would just look at that game and just be like, if they won that game, they would have been sky high for the rest of the season, going to a great season this year. Instead, it probably they lost it. And I, I guarantee you that's the start of where it's sort of dividing the team from what it sounds like. Yeah, and I mean, it, I've seen this happen on in the pros. You've seen this happen in college before. They they went all in on the FSU game, and when they lost that pot, that that was it. They they couldn't they couldn't sack up and ante up anymore. Unfortunately, I mean, those the losses at the end of the year were brutal. And but I I like the idea of whether it's trying to get this kid eligible right away. Or you know, it reflects in the play calling next year. Um, you know, I, I thought they kind of went for it last year too by making Brad Kaya the starter. But but I like bold, aggressive moves when your back's against the wall. And certainly Al Golden's staff, their backs are against the wall. This at this stage of the game, they have to be. Um, yeah. Which I want to ask you something else, Chris. Um, 
I want to ask your opinion. I mean, you're a former student athlete. Um, you're obviously well-read, very in tune with what goes on at universities. The University of Miami uh, named a new president this week, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of opinions. They named Julio Frank, who was uh, formerly Harvard's um, School of Public Health dean, uh, you know, definitely has a great reputation for raising money, certainly an academic. Um, I mean, this is a home run hire in terms of, um, you know, research and, and academics and, and all that good stuff. Um, some of the fan base is a little upset because they don't feel like this guy comes with uh, uh, much experience or, or personality towards athletics. They're looking for somebody maybe more like a Gordon G. I don't know. I think the whole thing is blown out of proportion. I don't think the university president has much say on on, on athletics anyway. I, I think you'll have some that will be more involved than others, but I, I don't think that most athletic departments are going to be run by the university president. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like you say, it's kind of blown out of proportion. I think a lot of – I think Shillelagh gets kind of a lot of ill will. Um, I mean – if you watch the first 30 for 30, I mean, Foot was, you know, way worse trying to try and hold back that program that I think Shalala has been. I think, unfortunately, they made a bad decision not revamping the Orange Bowl and kind of being there for life and making that a stadium, but that's a different discussion for another time um, and my thoughts on that. I mean, for when Shalala, when I was on the team, she did a great job. She'd come in, you know, she was always friendly, you know, was never – hey, we think that this is, you know, we don't really like you. You never really got that feeling, at least I didn't, that she's just out there to kind of, like, shake hands, make it all look good, and leave. Like, she actually seemed to care. And, you know, I mean, whether that's true or not, um, it's just the fact that she did it. just kind of went out of her way. I feel like if she really didn't care, she wouldn't make an appearance. I mean, I worked at Georgetown football the last two years, and the president not once came out to the football team or anything I can tell you right now, that's a lot different situation about not really caring about the football program and things like that and just really focusing on the academic side of it instead of worrying about how the athletic department's going to grow. So, one, I always feel like Shalala got a bad rap. I think you got to see how he gets in there, what happens. Um, like you say, I've never been in a position like that to know how much a president of the university really has a hand in the athletic department. I also just think it depends – on their style of management. Um, I hope he does recognize that, yes, athletics do, do help your university bring in applications, and it's a great way to just get great publicity to say, hey, um, you know, I want to go to University of Miami because they have a great football team. Or like, hey, I want to check out this. If I live somewhere else and I'm a smart kid, I want to check out this school more. So I think it's both. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I think it's good. I think it's one where Shalala did a great job of building the school uh, academically but it's also good to now get some fresh ideas in and uh, see where Frank takes this. I'm going to go off the rails a little bit here, and I'm going to tie it back into this current conversation uh, neatly after I go a little sidetrack here. Um, for those unfamiliar, yeah, th- th- this is going to be fun, uh, if you guys can stick with <laughs> me here. Anybody listening, because it's going to go really – I'm really going to sidetrack here. But for those – unfamiliar with what's been going on in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, The University of Alabama, Birmingham, which is monitored or run, whatever you want to say, under the same uh, board of trustees as the University of Alabama um, because they're both 
public institutions, I guess, under the same, um, you know, mothership, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, um, they made a decision at UAB to get rid of football and two other sports. Uh, I can't remember what the other two were. They were very, they were non-revenue sports. But their justification was that um, it was not financially, it was not a financially sound decision to keep football. Um, going back a little bit, the history of UAB, uh, UAB about seven years ago had a chance to hire Jimbo Fisher, and they had raised the money to pay him, and um, it was turned down by, by the board. Uh, they didn't want Jimbo Fisher. They wanted somebody else. Um, they've had numerous attempts to build new stadiums, build new practice fields. It's always been shot down. Um, it's almost felt from the beginning like the board's been working against uh, UAB, which is amazing considering how well-funded Alabama is. Um, Alabama at Tuscaloosa, you know, they had a waterfall, a $3 million waterfall put into their locker room. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, you know, they've won national championships. Obviously, they generate a lot of revenue for that university. It's all well-deserved. I'm not, I'm not going there on that. But but what I'm getting at here is public enemy number one in Birmingham right now is a gentleman named Dr. Ray Watts, who's the university president at University of Alabama Birmingham. Um, he's had a no confidence vote. The faculty wants him gone. Um, you know the students want him gone. There's even legislation being looked at um, beyond him being gone, but separating UAB from UA and and all kinds of things going on. But some folks that are close to the situation, and and I'm very fortunate that I was able to interview Jared Haas about a year and a half ago, who's the university men's basketball coach at UAB. Um, they just had a nice little run where they made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament. Great young coach. They ended up succeeding uh, Roy Williams at UNC eventually. He's former assistant of Roy Williams, at, or former uh, player for Roy Williams when he was at Kansas. And I also got a chance to interview Bill Clark, um, last September, when he first took the job at UAB, a great young coach turned that team around from I think a two and ten season to six and six this year, before they um, disbanded the program. But when I was on campus there, I, I was asking a lot of questions about the history of the program, and 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 this bad blood between UA and UAB apparently goes back, uh, you know, ten fifteen years to when Bear Bryant was still alive, even longer. Uh, Bear Bryant didn't want UAB to have a program. And um, what I'm getting at here is the current uh, head of the board um, for UA and UAB is a man named Paul Bryant Jr., who happened to be Bear Bryant's son. Now, what am I talking about? Why am I going there with this? Besides the fact that I find the whole thing compelling and, and disturbing at the same time. <clears throat> Every university has a has a board of trustees. Um and essentially, if I'm understanding the way things work correct, the, pre the university president is named by the board and basically works for the board. What does this have to do with Miami? I, I don't think Dr. Frank is going to be hands-on. And I don't think Dr. Frank is going to be hands-off, you know, strictly on his own, uh, uh, you know, facilities. I think he's going to make a lot. He's, he's gonna, Obviously, he's a very powerful man, and he's going to be, in charge of a lot of important decision making decisions, and he's going to be a big time decision maker. And he's, you know, Donna Shalala did amazing things at UM, not related to athletics. If the board gets unhappy, this is what I'm getting at. There, there are people on that board that are very 
invested in, in how the football team does. And if the board gets unhappy with the job Al Golden's doing, Dr. Frank will hear about it. And, and, and you know, I'm not saying that uh, there will be a change, but if it is his final decision or if it is the athletic director's final decision, there's going to be some input from the board. And, and that's what I'm getting at here. The whole thing with naming the University of President and, and expecting them to solely or directly have an impact on, on coaching decisions, to me, is preposterous. Now, I kind of went around about way here, but the point I'm bringing up with UAB is um, everybody hates Ray Watts, but from what I'm understanding from some people who are close to the situation is Ray Watts was just carrying out an order that was probably executed by uh, Paul Bryant Jr. So <laughs> that being said, yeah. you know, even in the most extreme example where you have a university of president that got rid of um, – you know, a football program, and that's the most extreme example possible, he was heavily influenced by outside forces. He did not come to that decision on his own. That was something that, I mean, and again, this is a lot of speculation. It's a lot of people that are close to the situation telling me what's going on. But at the same time, tying it back into UM, Dr. Frank is not going to sit down and say, I want to fire Al Golden or I want to extend Al Golden. He's going to have a lot of influence from a lot of people. And I'll, I'll conclude with that thought. I agree. And uh, being up in the Georgetown area and being around more of the athletics that are in the Northeast and being a part of, you know, Ivy league games, uh, the probably the best team that's in that Patriot league, Ivy league and Northeast look of division one, double a, what is FCS is Harvard. And they are very successful and, you know, they take a lot of pride and the fact that they are that good at football in that league. You know, I mean, I guarantee you, I mean, they got guys going to the NFL, things like, I mean, are they obviously going to the NFL that, you know, Miami players are, Alabama players are? No, but they got guys trying to make squads pretty much year in and year out. And it's one of those where they take a lot of pride in that and they want to win football games, even if it is at the Ivy League level. And I think for everybody to, you know, it doesn't seem like he's coming from a big athletic background, but Harvard sports uh, has been around for a while, have a lot of tradition. And like I said, I mean, if they weren't probably in the Ivy League and didn't have its restrictions, um, would be probably a pretty good powerhouse just in the Division One sports, um, you know, if they could do more scholarships and things like that. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, the basketball team for Harvard, you know, it's been – and the NCAA tournament consistently the past few years. You know, again, the football team pretty much wins the Ivy League championship every year, if not, you know, every couple of years. So it's one where I think we just kind of have to realize that, yes, this athletic department's a little bit different in the sense that they still take a lot of pride and it's coming from that, but it's not to the same extent and as big um, that it is down south. So I, I would just encourage people to take a look at it from kind of a different angle and say, all right, just because he hasn't been in an athletic department that's won, say, national championships on the massive scale, know that the Harvard Athletic Department has been very, very successful for many years. I, and yeah, and I agree with you 100%, but I'll, I'll, I'll make a counterpoint here. How much of Harvard's success was directly related to, to Dr. Frank, do you think? But also, let me, to your point, let me say that, you know, Dr. Frank – uh, at his initial press conference, and, and I streamed the entire thing and listened to everything he said, uh, brought up his doctorate at the University of Michigan, a, a very, very, um, you know, successful uh, athletic 
program, you know, many successful athletic programs at Michigan, obviously. And, and he referenced that experience about, you know, teaching him the importance of athletics, uh, you know, uh, to campuses and, 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 and to major colleges. So, you know, the Harvard experience, um, how much of the success was due to him, I, I, I doubt very much. Um, but his experience at Michigan, I think, which he referenced, probably taught him a lot about athletics and, and at least the importance. So on that note, I kind of agree with you um, and kind of disagree with you at the same time about <laughs> about what he could bring. So, um, And I, I, I could be completely off mark on <laughs> on my analysis of what the Board of Trustees plays and all that stuff. I, I just find the whole thing to be really interesting and I don't want to be overcritical of the fan base, but I spent a lot of time on Facebook the day that this announcement was made, and and I saw the resentment in some of the team's groups and the questioning, and, you know, I just think that people are too quick uh, to look for a trigger man, so to speak. I, I, I don't think the university president is the, the panacea or the, or the downfall for your athletic programs. It takes a lot of people to build, you know, a strong football team, a strong Division One football team. It takes coaches, it takes players, it takes a strong AD, you know, it takes staff members, athletic trainers, uh, you name it, athletic facilities, the people that clean the facilities, <laughs> you know, down to yeah. – uh, and, Chris, you, you've had the opportunity to play Division One football. You You know, you know better than I. It doesn't just come down to a president. This this announcement was much more important for for other things than than athletics, in my opinion. So I I mean I absolutely agree. And you know I mean when it's down to it, they, the board of trustees is trying to hire somebody that's going to make the school overall better. You know, and whether that be in the great medical school that we have now to other things, and not to just get on a high horse and just promote University of Miami. But there's just a lot of things where you know. Athletics is a part of it and a great tool to use, and it's using that properly, but understanding everything that goes into making a university and making it successful. I mean, let's be honest, the Alabama president did not make that football program as good as it is now, you know, after he fired, I think, what was it, Mike Shula, um, and went from there. He became really good because Nick Saban came there. It had nothing to do with who the president was and things like that. I mean, I don't, we don't even know, as a casual fan of football, does not know who the University of Alabama president is. They know who the football coach of Alabama is. And for the most part, it starts there and making sure you have the right guy in the right place. Is Al Golden the right guy? Um, as I've said, I'm split down the middle. Uh, and I think this year is going to be a big year for it. And where to see he goes and how he handles the situation this year. You know, and like you said earlier, I mean, the cloud, for the most part, has pretty much been lifted. And it's just kind of like you really don't have any more excuses now, and especially since you're about to put out probably the best talented draft class we've had um, since about 06 uh, or 07 or 06 when Beeson and Greg Olson and Merriweather all got drafted in the first round. You know, that's yep. probably the deepest draft that we've had, you know, this one coming up. So I agree, but it comes down, you know, you can blame the president. I think, again, too, there's just so much. Everybody wants to just blame somebody right now, which is fine, and I understand. But at the same time, we just kind of got to take a step back, hope they figure out what's good is if Golden doesn't do well, uh, Frank is not going to have a lot of, you know, probably not a big relationship, so he's going to be able to move on. So we'll see where it goes. You know, I mean, there's just 
I just hope they can turn around, win some games, and, uh, you know, really just kind of get everybody positive again. Because, like I said, and people have said and pointed out um, that, you know, it's affecting the players to a point where, you know, their moms are talking about how negative it is around the program right now, which is tough. And it's tough for an 18-, 19-year-old to really get that out of their mind, you know, while they're trying to train in spring. So I, I hope to see a good turnaround. I hope to see they do well. I mean, I think we all do, obviously. And, you know, it's, it's tough to cheer because if they fire Golden, great. You know, but that doesn't mean a certainty that we're going to get this great coach that's going to turn us around a year or two. You know, it's all of a sudden going to take another three to four years. So that's, that's where I stand. I'm always I've been 50-50, and I said this year is going to be the year that sways me if you should stay or not. Yeah, and, and I'm with you there, and um, it, it also doesn't help recruiting, and that that's that's the lifeblood of any program. You know, the negativity probably does not help recruiting um, one bit. So I, I'm with you there. But you, you did bring up um, an excellent point, um, something that I definitely uh, wanted to talk about today. And now uh, we won't go 100% in detail here because I think me, you and I are going to collaborate on an article uh some point before the NFL draft and kind of do a a mock draft type um, prediction of, of, of where each of the eligible uh, Miami football players might go and, and, and what we see in their futures. But but I did want to kind of touch on the, on the NFL draft a little bit on this podcast. Um, you referenced it. There There's more talent maybe than, you know, any any team, uh, any young teams produced since going back since 2006. I mean, at the t- very top, you got Eric Flowers, who's expected to go in the first round. But um, Philip Dorsett could also go in the first round. Denzel Perryman's being looked at. Clive Walford, um, you know, you've got a number of, of prospects. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you how deep you thought this class was. And, um, you know, do we have pro bowlers in this group? Um, just solid pros? I mean, what are we looking at at the next level? Let's try and project without – trying to project the actual teams are going to because you and I are going to work on that uh, in the coming days. Let's just project, um, you know, between Pro Bowl, starter, reserve, or probably won't make the team. Let's go through the list, and, and you tell me what you think and why. And, and let's start with um, with Duke Johnson. What, what do you think is um, – what do you think, his, you know, his ceiling is as an NFL player? I think he's – I think he's going to be – I think what's kind of good for him, and I think it's kind of as the Clinton court, where he's going to get drafted in the second round thinking that he's a first-round pick. And because of that, he's going to come out with his hair on fire for the next three to four years to show that he's better than those other guys and that everybody said that he's undersized. I mean, we saw the guy run. He sees the field extremely well. And it's just one of these where, you know, I, I talked to a couple other teammates where they're just like, amazing how, you know, your film shows how well you did, and then all of a sudden you get in the combine, have one thing kind of go wrong, and everybody just says you're all of a sudden this bad athlete that can't do anything. You're like, well, I just the all-purpose yardage record at one of the most prestigious schools that have produced unbelievable pro bowlers and Hall of Famers, you know? So for him, I think he's going to get drafted in the second round. I'm not really sure. For him, I think he's the biggest question mark because running backs always – Especially now, um, you know, a team even that doesn't seem like they need one will uh, will come up and grab one. Um, wouldn't be surprised actually the Browns maybe, um, just because they don't seem to have a solidified starter in that sense. Um, but 
for him, I think he's going to come in. He's going to come in, and I think he's going to do a lot better than what he's being projected right now. I agree with you, and I'm going to bring in one factor. Um, I'll bring in one factor positive and one factor negative for Duke. Um, one factor positive is, is is something that's extremely underrated for a rookie back and that so many of them struggle with, uh, and that's pass protection. Uh, if you yeah. want to be an every back, if you want to – you know, stay on the field on third down. You can't just – it doesn't matter if you could run between that tackle then run to the outside. It doesn't matter if you have the best hands in the world. NFL offenses in today's day and age where they like to spread you out with, you know, three, four, you know, receivers, they, they need a guy that can occasionally stay in and pick up a blitz, pick up a free runner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that when you when you have an overload like a Rex Ryan, you're going against the Bills, say, this year, and Rex Ryan's in three guys from the left can identify which one's the most dangerous and give that quarterback that extra split second uh, to make a big play. And well, Willis McGahee is the best example of that. I mean, he prolonged his career yeah. for three years because he could run block so well, you know? He shouldn't have been running the ball yep. anymore and he, because he run, he run block so well. Um, he stayed in the league for an extra couple of years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I mean... Duke did a great job of that at UM, but if you read some of the articles that came out during the combine, um, and if you listen closely to what some of the insiders are saying, um, you know, that, that watch these guys go through interviews, uh, Duke Johnson has a great mind for the game as well. And and that's going to show up big, especially his rookie year. A lot of guys struggle their rookie year, and eventually they catch on and they get better and better at it. But if you want to make an impact your first year in the league, and let's be honest, you, you have to kind of do that because uh, in the NFL, your shelf life as a running back is not that long. Um, so I, I think somebody's going to pick him up, and they're going to be really pleasantly surprised. He's going to be more than uh, a change of pace back. I think he's going to be an every down back as long as he's you know uh, playing on a team that doesn't already have somebody that's like an established star. I, I really like like Duke to be potentially even an offensive rookie of the year. He reminds me of Giovanni Bernard, who was on the Bengals, or still is on the Bengals. He's got the same kind of skill set. And you can even have him run kicks back. I mean, the guy does it all. But let's move on to the next guy I want to talk about. What do you see the ceiling as for for Phil Dorsett? I mean, obviously he can run. Can he be a complete wide receiver at the next level? He's probably my favorite. I mean, him and Flowers, I have kind of the biggest ceiling for, um, which I think might surprise people. But I want – I love his natural speed. I feel like he runs uh, – I mean, I feel like he runs his route well. He runs his routes effectively as well for his speed, so it makes him even faster. I mean, there's always something we talk about in a team, there's track speed and there's football speed. You know, there are a lot of guys that were really fast on the track, you know, but they come in and they play football, and because you have to run routes properly – the way you run routes, the way that you cut, you lose a lot of speed, and how hard you run, you know, kind of depends on that. For him, um, just for how fast he is and how effective he is, I think he's going to be great. I would not be surprised uh, if he slips into the second round and he's there, the Eagles take him, because obviously yeah, they're down Jeremy Macklin. Um, who else? They, I mean, Deshaun Jackson obviously two years ago, and they seem to be needing some receiver help. And for the way that offensive is, and uh, how quick you need to be and fast you need to be and be ready to go. 
I think he'd be a great fit there. And for him, you know, I look at Alan Hearns and the effect and the impact he had with the Jaguars last year and held his own pretty well. Um, I think Philip Dorsett's a much better receiver and one where if he gets a chance in the right system, I think he's really going to take off. I wouldn't even be surprised. Um, and I'm saying this because I'd love to see it happen. Um, one, because Andre Johnson left. I'm a big Texans fan, born in Houston. So it was great to see him go from Miami to the Texans, and it's very sad for the first time in about 15 years I'm not going to be able to cheer for him. Um, I'd love to see, because they're going to need another receiver, and I would love to see him lined up next to Hopkins, or opposite of Hopkins, and just have to really try and stretch the field that way. So I would just see him going to one of those two teams. Um, I'd love to see him obviously go to the Texans because I'm biased, but I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he falls into the Eagles' hands just because of how much receiver help they need and how much uh, Chip Kelly does not mind using young guys in those slots and or using those guys in those positions. I, but I, they don't trade well, everything for Mariota, so. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I think I think that's going to happen with San Diego. I, I think Mariota's going to end up in San Diego. Reportedly, they have uh, uh, Phil Rivers on the block. That's how badly they want Mariota, so I, I, that's, I think that's going to end up. I think there's a good chance there's going to be uh, – Something's going to happen there. As far as Dorsett, I, I just think that he is beyond a 40-yard dash guy. I think he has game speed, and he, he's very dangerous for that reason. And, and I kind of liken him to Deshaun Jackson. I mean, Deshaun Jackson is not going to run too many button routes. You're not going to send him 15 yards downfield for a comeback, although, you know, he, he does do it sometimes. You look for big plays out of that guy. And, and I think – Dorsett, maybe not quite as explosive side to side, although he's probably as fast as Jackson. I think he's even more sturdily built, so maybe you can do a little bit more yeah. intermediate stuff with, with Dorsett. But I, I really like his potential. I don't see him as a number one because I, I think the way the game is going, you got to have a, a big big guy as your number one in most cases anyway. Um. But, you know, his ceiling, I, I like what Brandon Cooks did this year in um, New Orleans. You're, you're seeing some of those smaller, quick guys uh, make comebacks now and, and be bigger parts of offenses. So I, I think he could definitely be more than just a slot guy. could be maybe a good number two. And and I, I like you. I look for him to go in the second round. And, uh, you know, if, if he goes to a team that has a little bit of everything and he's just a – you just need a guy to take the top off of an offense. He could, he could off of a defense. He could be really effective doing that. Uh, the next guy I want to talk about is Eric Flowers. Um, do you think he's a prototype left tackle? Do you see him moving a right tackle at the next level? Uh, is this guy a Pro Bowler, solid starter? What do you think his career is going to be like? Uh, I think it's one that's going to develop. I mean, I think it's. It's always interesting seeing the young offensive linemen come out early because some are ready and some are not. Um, I, I wouldn't. Depends on what if it, there's a severe need for a left tackle on a team. Um, I don't think that they'll just. Uh, I think they will put him out at left tackle. Uh, I would not be surprised if he gets picked up by a team uh, late in the first round that has pretty good offensive line already and is thrown more in like a right tackle or left guard position. Um, one that I think would be a good fit for him and uh, because they just lost a guy that also wore number 74 for the uh, Miami Hurricanes, uh, Orlando Franklin going to San Diego, uh, I think they would be very happy to 
see the two as very similar type players, uh, can play that left tackle, right tackle position, uh, big guys um, that are ready pretty much at the NFL, and just massive human beings as well that are very athletic. Uh, him to fall into Denver's lap uh, and be picked there and go with them because obviously they just lost a pretty key player for them. I I love Flowers, and and I tell you, you look at him, he, he put up the most bench presses at the Combine. Uh, you watch what he did at UM um, with, you know, just athleticism and toughness. Um, his technique wasn't even that clean. He wasn't what you call a great technician. Uh, he's a little bit sloppy, actually, with his hands and his feet sometimes, yet gave up zero sacks this past year, um, was only called for two holdings the entire year, and did all that playing part of the year with a torn meniscus. I, I think mm-hmm. I think if you get Flowers to a team that has maybe like a Joe Bugle type, uh, you know, a legendary uh, top-notch offensive line coach, uh, Bill Callahan, if you will. I think if you get him someplace where he gets his technique cleaned up a little bit, he's going to be a star Pro Bowl type. I, I really do. I think if he goes someplace and maybe he doesn't get the type of coaching that he needs, I, he'll still be a solid right tackle. I, I think if you add his brute strength, athleticism, and toughness, and you clean up his technique a little bit, I, I think he's got star written all over him. Because I, I, I don't – year in and year out, there's always left tackles that get picked, you know, top 10, top 15. But I don't think any of them have anything on this guy in terms of toughness and athleticism. So, um, technique-wise, he gets cleaned up. He's going to be a superstar. Um, Absolutely. In my opinion, anyway. Uh, the next guy I want to talk about was uh, Denzel Perryman. Um I mean, we all know he can bring it. Uh, he's as hard a hitter has come through UM in a long time. Um, good leader on and off the field. Um, during some of his time at UM, though, they haven't had the best defenses. Uh, you know, can't be a one-man wrecking crew. I mean, you need help, especially at inside linebacker or outside linebacker. He also played. But what do you see? Is his size going to hurt him at the next level? You know, is he... Do you think he'll be a Pro Bowl type player? Is he um, just a solid contributor? What do you think, Chris, about Denzel? He's he's the one I'm most unsure about because of everything that you kind of that you just alluded to. The fact that you know he was a one man wrecking crew. Um, he is a little bit undersized, but I don't think just because you're undersized at linebacker makes you a bad linebacker. Um, I think if you're able to hit and hit hard uh, and have a lot of strength, which he does. Um, he's going to be able to bring it very well in the NFL. Um, I, I could see him going out, having again, and that kind of chip on his shoulder because he isn't really being fully respected. Um, or I could see him going out and, you know, just struggling to fit where he needs to. And, I mean, who knows how much of it was scheme that put him in positions or just him, you know, being a great player instinctively um, getting him in the right spots, uh, you know, which can work at times, you know, but it, that only really works if you're Troy Polamalu type where you just instinctively know where things are happening. Um, I don't think he's at that level by any means. And, I mean, I, I could just see, you know, where he, the college game worked for him but might struggle more in the NFL game. But then I could also just see him coming in and just wreaking havoc 
you know, still be in that wrecking crew. I mean, it's it's very rare uh, you get a guy that just loves to hit. Uh, you know, you get guys that will hit, but the guy that loves to hit, that puts everything into it, and he's definitely that type of guy. Um, I, I'd be, I'd be interested. I'm very interested to see how it turns out for him. And again, I mean, everything he's done seems to be kind of a, a classy kid uh, that's done it right. Stayed one more year, uh, trying to improve and be better. And I, I mean, I, I really hope the best for him. But one, I'm definitely the most unsure about. Yeah, the thing about uh, Denzel, I, I, I really like him between the tackles. Um, I like him um, getting off of blocks. I think he does a fantastic job of that. I, I like him on screen plays and and misdirections because he, he, he's really intelligent on the football field, and he did a great job reading plays and, and disrupting plays that were designed specifically to fool him. If you go back and watch some film uh, of UM this year, there were a lot of plays that were, I, I you know, you have to think the offensive coordinator put in specifically to get him out of position because that was the one guy that didn't want to deal with. And he usually still made the play. So I, I really like him on, on that aspect. What I don't like him is out in coverage. I, he looks very unnatural trying yeah. to, to cover running backs or even tight ends uh, on passing plays. Um, so that limits him, in my opinion. But I still think he'll be a solid pro. Uh, I liken him to for another former UM great, John Beeson. He's had a, a really good career uh, in the NFL, and you know, I think pretty much similarly sized. I think Denzel's a little smaller, but or even a, a Dak Gwynn, who played on the Dallas Cowboys, um, former Texas A&M player who had a very good career um, and was especially effective against the run and, and disrupting plays. Uh, I don't think he's going to be the next Ray Lewis. Because uh, I, yeah. I, I think he has some some limitations, but but I, I like Denzel nonetheless. I think you're going to get a good a good pick if you can get him in the second round. Um, and you're going to pick up a good player that, that you can definitely build your defense around. I, I might take him off the field on third and long though. That's just how I see it. But okay, um, so uh, I think we've gone through most of the players that are expected to be picked pretty high at UM. I don't think we've done Clive Walford yet. So what's your opinion on Clive? Um, do you think he's a Pro Bowl type tight end? Um, you know, solid I think player. He's entering the league. He's entering the league at the right time for him because everybody's now looking for a big tight end that can run routes well, um, and they're not as worried about run blocking, which I think he still does a pretty good job of. But the fact that he could probably play left tackle just size wise, but can run and catch so well. Um, you know, I mean, he's not going to be anybody deep down the field. You know, he's not going to, he's, he's not that type of Jimmy Graham where he's just so freakishly athletic that he can run with DBs and outrun linebackers and safeties. But he's bigger than those linebackers and those safeties where, you know, it's just going to create matchup issues. And the right coach, I mean, and any coach is going to see that and use it well. I mean, everything I've read about him, everybody has said he's probably one of, like, those safest picks where you know that you're just going to get a guy – that, you know, probably isn't going to tear up the NFL, but one that's going to be extremely effective for you. And, and now, you know, I mean, he'll have one effective year and a couple down years for a couple tight ends, and he'll make a couple of core goals just on that, I feel like. Um, whether that, again, I think, again, it all depends on what you're in, and I don't take too much stock in the Pro Bowl uh, 
debate and talk, but I think uh, I think for him, he's definitely going to be the sure bet of guy that can produce um, the the most or consistently throughout the next you know at least at least three to four years, if not five. I really like Clive. Um, that being said, I, I don't put him in the class of, of a Jimmy Graham or, or, you know, formerly Tony Gonzalez or, you know, I, I don't see him as, as a Pro Bowl type. But the reason why I really like him, I, I saw ridiculous improvement every year from this guy. You brought up his run blocking yeah. and said he does a pretty good job. Go back and watch Duke Johnson's 90-yard touchdown run against North Carolina and see who throws the, kill, the, the the most important block on that. I mean, Dorsett got a good block about 15 yards downfield on that one. But Clyde sealed the edge. Uh, if you go back and watch some of the, you know, the runs that Joe Yerby and Duke Johnson had last year, a lot of times they're putting Clive Walford in motion and putting him in ISO situations to make ISO blocks that you, you know, usually expect a fullback to make. And, and he, you know, he showed the ability to do that. I think his run blocking improved dramatically uh, in his time in Coral Gables. I think his hands got a lot more consistent. I think he had a couple of drops this year that I remember offhand, but for the most part, he caught almost everything. Uh, He shows the ability to run after catch. Uh, He runs good patterns. He he sets his man up nicely. He's a complete mismatch for linebackers um, in coverage. You know, I, I really like this guy. I don't think he's, you know... The NFL right now, you've got so many tight ends that are just freaks of nature from Gronkowski, you know, Graham at the top of the uh, food chain for tight ends. I don't put him in that elite level because he's just not that gifted. But I I think you're going to get the most out of – you're going to get the best Clive Walford that you can because his work ethic's obviously there and he shows the ability to to get better every year. So I really like Clive. Uh, Moving on, I'm going to throw two names at you now. And, and you can give me your opinion on them. Uh, very similar prospects. Um, Shane McDermott and uh, John Feliciano um, both had nice careers. Both started um, almost their whole time at UM. Um, both are leaders, um, but are both NFL players. What do you think, Chris? I think McDermott's going to be smart enough to make it um, just because of his IQ. I think it's one where He'll get some spot starts um, just because he's a smart football player. Uh, Feliciano, I think it's interesting. Again, the leader, um, I could see him going undrafted. He, what bugged me about him all the time is that he looked like he was trying to get into a fight almost all the time. And it, it just seemed to be more distracting and not really helping the team than it was, you know, there are times to do that and there are times to, you know, get in the other team's space and things like that. But if you're trying to do every play and every drive, uh, you know, you, you lead to a potential of a 15-yard penalty. And, and those guys are smart enough in the NFL now where they say, you know, if you're going to be a young guy that comes in and do that, we're going to be able to get you to get riled up enough to give us a 15-yard penalty. I mean, they're smart about that, you know. It's not a bunch of young guys that are just talking trash. It's guys that are actually using that as a strategy. So, for me, I think more – I think McDermott's the smarter – safer player when it comes to that sense. Uh, I think he's going to give you everything he's got as well. I think Feliciano will, but I just I worry about kind of where his mindset is and keeping that, um, you know, under wraps instead of letting it get the most of him. Um, you know, I, I think for me, I think 
think McDermott's going to be the more successful just because of uh, how smart he is as a player. I, I see things uh, the exact opposite as you. <laughs> That's right. why. A little disagreement. Yeah. Disagreement's good sometimes. <laughs> I, I watch McDermott play, and I, I think he's a very, very smart player, and, and he does a good job uh, with body positioning. But I didn't see him as – I mean, and centers are a little different than guards and tackles. You don't always need to be a mauler, but I, I think his physical limitations are going to hold him back. And there are a lot of good centers um, in the NFL now, and it, it's a tough position, um, you know, if that's the only position you play. Uh, and that's not to say that he can't learn a new position in the NFL, but again, with his physical limitations, I don't see him as necessarily, definitely not a tackle, and he might not, be, he might be too limited to play guard. So he's kind of a specialized guy, and that's a tough way to go if you're not special. Um, on the other hand, Feliciano um, played guard and both tackle positions his senior year at UM, and and I think that versatility is going to help him on the next level. I think. Teams are always looking for depth guys that can play multiple positions because obviously, you know, with the limitations you have on your roster, you need guys. And you know, there's always injuries in the NFL. There's always attrition. You need guys that could step in and play both positions. Now, at the same time, I don't think Feliciano is necessarily the most gifted guy athletically either. Um, yeah. He kind of his arms are kind of short. When I look at him, I, I don't know what his arm measurements are, but his arms look kind of short for me compared to like what you think an NFL guard looks like, and especially he an looks NFL very disproportionate. Like it just did not work out for him physically, just to proportionally size wise for him. He just he looks. I, I agree with you. He looks as I'm reading right now on one website. He's pear shaped with short arms. I agree. <laughs> That's a little more harsh than what I was going to say about him, I, but I, that's kind of the, the point I'm getting at. When I look at him, and don't get me wrong, I love the guy's toughness, and I think he's going to get a long look because of his versatility, uh, you know, and he's obviously, to be a Division One offensive lineman that you start almost your whole career, you have to be tough and you have to be athletic. But I just don't think he looks the part. When I look at him, I don't see NFL. When I look at Eric Flowers, you know, I see exactly how you'd want to draw up a left tackle. Um, you know, I, I, when I look at Feliciano, I think he doesn't look the part. And sometimes guys can overcome that, um, yeah. you know, with, with technique, toughness, um, and hard work, you can overcome that. But my initial thought on Feliciano is he'll get a long look because he can play multiple positions. But looking at him, I don't see the the NFL prototype uh, offensive lineman. So I think that covers it for all the guys that we have that are – well, there's one other guy that might get a look. So I'm just going to ask you yeah or nay, and you can expand on this. Do you think Ryan Williams gets invited to a camp? Yay. Um, I just I, – he's a tall kid that can throw the ball around. And, and one of the best things that he has going for him is he doesn't have game film and game tape. So he's a big unknown. Um, which yeah. you, you look at Matt Castle and he all of a sudden kind of gets, you know, a little fall. Like people say, well, you just, you know, we're in an unfortunate situation where you get good players play in front of you. And for him, you know, Ryan Williams came in, Morris was there, you know, was the established starter. And then Williams was supposed to, then towards ACL and kind of played so well. 
that you know he was never going to play. Um, for for I, yeah, he he gets an invite somewhere, and again for him the best thing I think is just the unknown. Um, is you know well this guy like you say about the eye test. I mean he's tall, he can throw it, and he seems to be a smart kid from what everybody has said about him uh, on the football field. That um, you know he, he's gonna he's just gonna get a look. Um, I don't know. I, I, that's what I think I had best going for him. Um, so we'll see. But I, I look at Ryan Williams. I think he's got working against him. He doesn't have a huge arm. That being said, uh, you know, the times he got into games and, and, and what I've seen on him, which isn't that much, he seemed pretty accurate. Um, like you said, he's a big, tall kid with, with a good pocket presence. But he seems more of a, a, a touch thrower to me than than a rocket arm guy. And that doesn't mean you can't make it in the NFL, but, I mean, for every Chad Pennington that you see that's successful, there's, yeah. you know, eight Troy Aikman. It, it's, it's a tough uh, road to hoe when, when you're not a big arm guy and you're trying to make it in the NFL. So I think that uh, – I think somebody will take a long look at him, but I think that's going to be his, his biggest limitation. They're going to – you know, bring him into camp, and they're going to let him throw the ball, you know, 35 yards downfield. And if he doesn't time it just right, it's not going to look good. So, but we'll see. I, I certainly wish the guy well. That's a guy that I really felt sorry for. Um, was a good soldier, so to speak. You know, really waited his turn and, you know, really got got hosed with injuries. Uh, we might be still wondering about Brad Kaya right now if, if – Brian Williams doesn't tear his ACL because I have no doubt he would have been the starting quarterback at UM, and he probably would have done really well. Um, yeah. You know, you don't need to be that big-armed of a quarterback to be successful in college. You just got to put the ball at the right place at the right time. The NFL is a little different. It's a little less forgiving, in my opinion, anyway. But Especially in warm weather places. I mean, that's, that helps, too. I, I think he would have been effective this year. I think Kyle would have redshirted, and we would have had no idea. Uh, what this kid is going to be able to do this year. Um, I mean, who knows, maybe he would have come in and just blown it away like he did. But, I mean, the fact that Whitney got hurt, Olsen uh, was a move or was a asked to leave the team, I guess, uh, would be the nice way to say yep. it. And, you know, it just it was kind of the perfect storm for Brad Kai at the start, whereas, you know, if none of that happened, Brad Kai would have probably been laid down the depth chart. And especially a kid that came to camp in August. You know, it's, it's very rare to see, you know, a freshman quarterback start, um, true freshman quarterback start, especially when they've only had a month of college football training camp under their belt. I, I think Kaya would have beat out Olsen anyway. Uh, in my, my sample size on Olsen is very small, but I, I watched him in, in one of the college uh, or one of the high school all-star games he played in, and, and I also watched uh, – as much film as I had available in the spring game last year. And Olsen is a similar story to, to Orion Williams, except I don't think he even had the the understanding of concepts and, and where, you know, um, where to put the ball down yet. He didn't have mm-hmm. a big arm. Olsen did not have a big arm. And Olsen's already gotten in trouble, I think, at Towson State, where he went. He's, He's already in trouble there. He's, uh, yeah. He uh, yeah, booted off the team uh, a couple weeks ago. I'll be honest with you, and I, I hope the kid, 
you know, gets his act together. Um, he's from my home state of New Jersey. I always root for Jersey players anyway, but uh, I, I don't think he had it anyway. I, I, I don't think he had uh, – you know, I wonder how much of his reputation coming out of high school was based on his name. He got hurt his senior year of high school and hardly played. His numbers uh, weren't that impressive. Um, although he played for a ridiculously good program, I think he came from Don Bosco, which is one of the best programs in the country out of Jersey. But anyway, beside the point, I, I didn't like what I saw of him. I just didn't think he was that physically gifted. And um, I, I think Kaya would have beat him out anyway. I think Ryan Williams definitely would have been the starter, but I'm kind of digressing here. So, well, Chris, we've talked about a lot of stuff UM today, and I want to go kind of off the rails again here and talk about some non-UM-related stuff. And I want to talk about a sport that uh, I really enjoy very much, boxing. Now, we're two weeks away from arguably uh, the biggest fight in our lifetime, our generation, with Floyd Mayweather taking on Manny Pacquiao. Um, both guys are guaranteed upwards of $50, $60 million. I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and these are the two best fighters of our generation. I, I don't know how big a boxing fan you are, but do you have any opinion on one, the fight itself, and two, the event? Um, so I'm not a big boxing fan by any means, but it's one of those where you're just going to watch because of the name and the star power and the fact that, you know, everybody's been talking about it, and you don't want to be that guy that missed, you know, the – fight we've been waiting for for six, seven years now. Um, you know, for, for me, it's interesting, and again, because I grew up in the generation of, you know, boxing was slowly deteriorating, and the fact of, you know, not being a big draw, um, not having that star power, and again, those big fights that drew people in. Um, so for me, it never really drew me into the sport. Um, where this, I, I really want to see, uh, because of the names and I think it's going to be a great fight. Again, I don't know that much about boxing to say it's going to go to a certain round and things like that, who I think is going to win. Um, but I'm excited to watch it just as a casual sports fan and knowing just the importance of the fight. Um, it was, I think it's great for boxing because now you get, you know, somebody like me to watch it that would not watch it. Like, I've never really – I mean, I've watched a couple Mayweather fights here and there, but that's just if I'm at a bar with a couple of buddies or something. You know, with this, you know, I, I'm going to watch and set out time to watch and plan that day and not just happen that it's on TV while I'm hanging out with friends. So I, I think it's one that's great for the sport. Uh, it, it, for you, you're more of a big uh, boxing fan, so I think it's great for fans like you to see the casual fans come in. And, you know, now it's one where you can talk to me and say, well, Chris, this is how this works in boxing. And I, you know, have that conversation they can hopefully pull me in and, you know, and pull other boxing fans in to really help the sport. At the same time, and I don't know if this is something you can agree with or not or disagree with, the fact that there's not, like, this big young guy or anything like that coming up and saying, like, hey, you know, I mean, with like, I look at golf and boxing, similar to sports that are trying to capture an audience to keep it alive and keep it going. What golf at least has it going for it is that there's at least, a, like, potential young stars and like McElroy and Jordan Spieth, and now I'm kind of like you, I'm going off on a totally different tangent, but I'll bring it back, is the fact that there are these younger guys in place. So 
in these great duels of, you know, if Tiger and Phil have these great duels, you know, at the end of their careers, they're still younger guys that hopefully people can get drawn to and they can start taking and taking that mantle. For boxing, there's not really that guy. And you can tell me, and I can be totally wrong, there could be that guy out there, but I don't really see it. And it's not one of the casual fans because for me, again, golf's the same way. I just watch it occasionally um, as a casual fan of it and a sporting fan. For boxing, I just I see this more as a kind of hopefully not, but could be one of those kind of swan songs for boxing as a sport, you know, which would be a great kind of way for the sport if it didn't really make it in the next few years to say, like, hey, that was a great way to end it with that type of fight, hopefully. But at the same time, one where, you know, that's great. They finally get this big fight that hopefully brings a lot of, you know, into boxing. But since these guys are at the end of their careers, you know, if this is one of their last fights, you're not really going to see them again. And there's nobody else to take that mantle of, you know, big name person that casual fan Chris Hayes knows and wants to watch down the road. Well, I think before I get into Mayweather and Pacquiao, if we want to talk about uh, the sport of boxing as a whole, um, I think it has suffered some um, from a couple things. One, the fact that this fight took so long to happen. You, you need the big events um, to get the buzz and to get casual fans like yourself involved. I, I think MMA slash UFC has has taken some of that, you know, some of the you know the fans that are in that niche away from boxing. At the same time, I think the support is is doing pretty well, and, and the fact that one event could possibly, I mean, they're expecting three, four. I mean the the previous record for pay-per-view buys was just over $2 million when Mayweather fought De La Hoya. That was the previous high, and Mayweather regularly does one $1.5 million pay-per-view buys. They're saying this might do three, four, five million $5 maybe. Um, and from what I heard, uh, they're expecting um, the price on this fight to be about $99, which is ridiculous in my opinion, you know, for yeah. you know, one event, for a pay-per-view event. But you're talking three hundred, four hundred, maybe five hundred million dollars of of revenue if 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 for one event short of the Super Bowl, there there's there's nothing else out there that, that's that big. So for a sport that seems to be suffering, they seem to be doing pretty well at the same time. Um, another thing with boxing, you know, as as a very hardcore, considering myself a hardcore boxing fan, if you're casual, you might not even know about this, but uh, boxing in the past couple of months has uh, returned to network TV. NBC's done a couple of events on Saturday nights, um, and that's a great sign for the sport as well, um, especially if the ratings are there. And they've put together some pretty good fights with some good up-and-coming guys. These aren't just... Um, you know, no name events and the fights themselves have been pretty good. So that that's a yeah. that's a great sport. Um network T V is definitely um a market that you want. You, you don't want just pay per view and cable. because um, you'll reach more young fans that way. So that's a great sign for boxing. Um and and, and I, I think, think the sport and I was just gonna say I think the demise of boxing is greatly exaggerated and, and we've heard this before. You know, this fight or that fight is supposed to save the sport, and, and and the sport just always seems to be around, and it seems to be doing pretty well. I think it's one I see it that I hope boxing 
and the people that organize in the sport um, that they see it as a tool, you know, one where you enjoy it, you enjoy being in that moment, um, but one, you have a chance to really promote your sport, um, and, and one where they could do, they have a chance to do a great job if they do it right. I mean, they obviously, there's a fine line. You don't want to just feel like, you, want, you don't want to overpower it where that, this event and this match, uh, this, this event gets to a point where, you know, you kind of just water it down with looking at other events or not, you know, you want to have the importance of the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. And you still want to have the importance, as you say, to educate me now as a casual fan, what's coming up, what else, what is there so I can learn? Where can I go online to see more fights? Where can I go online to read more about it? And it's one where I think they have a great opportunity um, to really just capitalize on giving and building a good fan base or, you know, building not, not a new fan or recreate, you know, redoing a fan base by any means. Um, or saving a fan base, but one where you can really build new boxing fans just from it. Um, and if they do it right, uh, I think uh, I think it's, it's going to help the sport. Well, you know, like you said, everybody says it's going to die and that it's out and, you know, it's no longer around, but they've been saying that for, you know, 10 to 15 years now. Um, and it's, like you say, it's still around. And that's a great point. Um, you know, it's one where I think, though, you still have a good foundation of fans that are going to want it and one where you can build onto that foundation, especially if they do it right, but at the same time not push you away uh, as the dedicated fan that's been there for so many years and just kind of get overdone by, you know, the marketing of worrying about other fights instead of appreciating the fight that's happening today. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting balance, and I hope they do a good job with it because uh, I'd like to see, you know, sports and things like that uh, succeed just being the, into one, being the sports fan that I am, and two, just being in the business for a while uh, of it and seeing how that works and the joy I have watching things grow from there. Yeah, and I the one thing I worry about with this particular fight is that the fight itself doesn't live up to the hype of the fight. That That's always a problem yeah. with boxing, too. Uh, sometimes your best fights are not... It's not the same as another sport. Hey, boxing truly is styles make matchups. College football, college basketball, you want to see Kentucky versus Duke or, you know, you want to see, you know, Florida State, Miami. You you want to see the best teams play each other, and that usually works out in the best games. Boxing is one of those things where the best fights I've seen in my lifetime were Arturo Gatti and, and Mickey Ward, and both of those guys were guys I would describe as, as B-fighters. Um, yeah. A little touch below um, the best of the sport, or actually a significant touch below. Better, way better than average. Good enough to make it onto the TV and even sell pay per view, but not the stars of the sport. Certainly, neither were undefeated. But when you got them together, it worked out to, to high intensity, high action fights. I look at Mayweather, Pacquiao, and I'm not sure Mayweather is um, best known for avoiding punches. Um, certainly he's a good counter puncher, but he takes a measured approach. Um, he, he likes to get, make you think. He likes to turn boxing into a chess match. And, you know, that's he's 47-0, and 0 and he has wins over, you know, other Hall of Famers because 
he hits you with that first lead right hand and he gets you thinking instead of just reacting. He's he's so quick and he's so hard to hit that sometimes his opponents get paralyzed, um, you know, and, and think too much in there. But that doesn't make <laughs> that that's great for Floyd Mayweather and Floyd Mayweather fans, but that doesn't always necessarily make for the most exciting fight. Now, with with the reason why people have been wanting to see this matchup for so long, especially in the hardcore boxing community, is you got Manny Pacquiao who's a southpaw meaning, you know, he, he's a left-handed fighter. Mm-hmm. And Floyd's best weapon is his lead right hand that he doesn't even throw behind a jab. He just throws lead right hands. And and that that's a matchup where it's strength on strength. Um, and Pacquiao's always been a high-action fighter. Um, he hasn't been producing the knockouts as he's um, gotten up in his career. But even the fights where he's not producing knockouts, um, he pushes the pace and, and he makes the fight exciting. And... Floyd Mayweather, um, as great as he is, might need that push. And you might get the best out of Floyd Mayweather because he's facing somebody that, that pushes him um, to that level, and it might actually make the fight very exciting. That, that's my hope anyway, is that Pacquiao doesn't allow Mayweather um, to create a walk-in-the-park scenario where he just beats you easily because he's so much more skilled than you, and he's forced to fight. And certainly has the skills that if he's forced to that type of fight, he could still win. So it should be interesting. I don't know that it's going to be, you know, a fight of the century candidate as far as what happens in the actual ring as much as it will in terms of promotion. But it should be pretty interesting. But, Chris, I'm going to close the show uh, with one last topic. Um, Since we're running low on time, I I wanted to talk a little NBA playoffs with you and get your predictions – and on the east and west coast, and what you're, what you think's going to happen, and and who's your title pick? Um, obviously, playoffs kicked off this weekend. Um, I know you're a, a big NBA fan, so give me your thoughts. Uh, well, I, I, it's tough this year because it's the first year in many years being a Heat fan, and whether people like that or not, I don't really care. Um, having them out, so one, one, it's weird. Um, you know, it, it's the opposite of when your team finally makes the playoffs and you're like, this is so cool. My team's in the playoffs for the first time in eight years and I get to care about the playoffs where this one, I get to sit back and be like, well, you know, whoever wins wins. So getting my own uh, personal issues out of the way uh, first, but I I think uh, in the East, it's pretty simple. It's going to come down between the Hawks and the Cavs in the Eastern conference finals. Um, And I, I think, shockingly somehow the J.R. Smith trade, and I think Mozgov uh, obviously played a bigger role into this to help complete that team. Um, but the fact I thought when he came in, you know, they were just going to implode. And the fact that they look so strong, um, I think they're going to get through Boston pretty easily, if not sweep. Um, I think Boston's just one of those teams that's kind of surprised to be there, happy to be there, go from there, um, pretty much get through their second-round opponent, and then face the Hawks. Uh, which I think will go to six games and the Cavs go on to the NBA Finals just because they're playing such strong basketball right now. And any uh, inexperience from Irving or uh, Kevin Love is just going to be compensated by LeBron knowing what to do and telling them what to do. Uh, Western Conference, obviously a lot different. I think what helps for the Warriors, um, I think their path got a lot easier once the uh, Thunder did not make it in the playoffs because I think Russell Westbrook would have uh, 
while the Warriors still would have won that, I think that uh, series would have drawn out to six games, seven games maybe, with the Warriors still winning. Um, but I, I see them uh, moving on um, into the Western Conference Finals as well. And uh, I, I think – and it's hard for me because I think Houston's there for the first time as a very strong team, um, you know, that's actually playing well and living up to the hype for the first time in about three years. But they haven't been able to do it in the postseason as much. Um, but I could see them – I see it becoming from – coming from Texas and San Antonio or Houston um, with James Harden, I think just continuing to play out of his mind. Um, and then I think the Warriors are going to go up against the Cavs, and I think it's going to be an exciting finals. Uh, my heart wants me to see the Warriors win because I don't want to see LeBron win without the Heat, uh, but I'm gonna just, I think he's finally just going to turn it on. I think he's just kind of been waiting to get to these playoffs, and when the big moment comes here in the next uh, against the Hawks, uh, in the West Eastern Conference Finals, and then when he gets to the NBA Finals, uh, he's he's going to kind of have his moment and show that you know how good he really is, which uh, is is going to be kind of tough to stomach. But I, I my my heart and my really wants to see the Warriors win it, but my head's telling me the uh, the Cavs are 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 complete enough and will get through the Eastern Conference healthy and well rested enough to play uh, play very very well in the uh, NBA Finals. Uh, great analysis, Chris. I just have a couple of follow-up questions for you. One, in the East, are you completely dismissive of Chicago? You don't think they can make noise? And then, um, Ooh, you um, got that's a good, that's a great question. Yeah, and then two. My other question was on the uh, on the uh, emotional reaction to Cleveland possibly winning. I mean, I know LeBron leaving Miami will make all the Miami fans out there upset, but you gotta be happy for Cleveland, though. Yeah, I, I I am. I would be. I'd be. Ha- it's one of those ones where I would just kind of take it and just be like, you know, it, it's great to see. Um, I'm happy it worked out. It's not the like the city of Cleveland. I'd love to see end up getting a championship at some point. Um, the problem is I don't really like Dan Gilbert, and I don't think he deserves a uh, an NBA championship uh, because I think he's just kind of a sleazy guy that bought an NBA team in Cleveland and. Uh, happened to get in a lot of luck by being able to draft LeBron um, and then having a lot of good fortune after LeBron left and showing his uh, ineptitude as an owner, uh, having good fortune and luck to uh, get some good pieces together where uh, LeBron wanted to come back. And the fact that I think, uh, you know, what really happened in that signing was the fact that Pat Riley said, no, I'm still going to control the team and make decisions. And Dan Gilbert said, no, you can do whatever you want. You can make all the decisions here. We really don't care. We just want you here, um, which I don't think is how he should run his basketball team, and I don't like it. So um, for me, that's that's where it comes in with that. I think with the Bulls, I, I, I just they seem to get worn down early in the playoffs each year. Um, and I think Derrick Rose, if he plays well, uh, he's going to get them and could uh, make some noise with them. But I, I think they'll uh, they'll get into the second round um, and then uh, have have a good fight, but but not pull it out. So I think just the Hawks. I think the Hawks are. It's it's weird to say that you want the Hawks to win, um, but I think overall they're just a very good, complete team. Like everybody says, there's no real star, which I think is good, especially going to be in this playoff. It'll be interesting to see, you know. When the game is on the line, all right, who's going to take over? 
you know, especially the way that the NBA is very one-on-one. But, hey, the Spurs have been doing it for a bunch of years where they don't really have a guy take over per se. They have a guy take over here and there. You know, I look at the year they actually lost the NBA Finals against the Heat, um, which they actually, you know, and I'll admit too, they should have won that series, you know, where each night it seemed like a different guy kind of stepped up and filled the role of being a star player, whether it was Duncan, Manu Ginobili had that one night where he just went off. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be similar to that um, in that sense for the Hawks, uh, where, you know, a guy, one of their top four guys all of a sudden takes off. But, uh, again, I don't think anybody's going to be able to stop the Cavs. Uh, just to to uh, do a little correction on you there, Chris. Sorry about this. <laughs> it's fine. I, think, I could be totally wrong. <laughs> and I and I think so. I could be wrong on this too. I, I don't have the brackets in front of me, but I'm like 95% sure that uh, if Chicago defeats Milwaukee, makes it to the second round, they will play the winner of of uh, of Cleveland. And um, because the uh, the Hawks got the one seed, so they would play the winner of the four or five. And I think Chicago got the three seed, and Cleveland has the two seed. So two three would play in the second round, and one four would play hypothetically. Um, so I think it would be Chicago. Cleveland would have to get through Chicago. So that 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 could be a really interesting second round matchup. Um, and and that's why I, I do, and I agree with you because I, I do that, and I guess I didn't make it clear because I think. The, that's why the Hawks will make it into that because they're not going to – they have that one seed and they're not going to have to worry about playing the Bulls and grinding it out, whereas the Cavs are, but I still think they're just better than the than the Bulls. Yeah, I, I agree with most of the rest of what you said, though, too. I, I look at Atlanta and I wonder who their go-to guy is. Um, it, it's hard to bet against Cleveland in any round because they still have LeBron James. Um, it's hard to bet against San Antonio in the West, though, because – um, even though they're playing from a lower seed, they've shown time and time again that they play their best basketball this time of year, and they, they know what it takes to win. Um, I'm with you on Golden State, too. I, I really enjoy watching um, the Splash Brothers play. I, I think a guy that doesn't get talked about enough because maybe he doesn't have the, the huge numbers is Draymond Green. Um I mean, that guy does a little bit of everything uh, as an undersized four in the NBA. I mean, he can shoot, he can score, he can defend, he blocks shots, he gets steals, he makes passes. I I look at that team, and he's almost, you know, with the Splash Brothers, he's right up there in terms of of, of his value to that team. And I I don't watch that much NBA basketball these days anymore. But I've watched Golden State maybe play four or five times this year, and – what that guy brings just as a glue guy and just his all-around game uh, really jumps out at me. And if they win the championship, I, I think people are going to be talking more about what a good player he is um, if they make it that far. But uh, most of everything you said I, I, I think was spot on. I, I, I think um, it's going to be a really interesting NBA playoffs. And if I can get past uh, watching Shaquille O'Neal do ridiculous things in the TNT studio, I might actually watch them. <laughs> <laughs> As we're sitting here on this podcast, I'm watching. I have the volume <laughs> off, and Shaquille O'Neal just ran away from the the studio desk and just like lay down on the floor. I have no idea what that was about. That was disturbing, though. That's um, probably, probably my favorite part of the NBA playoffs is the fact that Barkley, Kenny Smith, and Shaquille O'Neal are all 
paired up together to bring just absolutely hysterical content. You never know where they're going. And I mean, for the most, I mean, it's nice to see Barkley back talking about the NBA instead of college basketball, where it just kind of seems like he doesn't really know and then just gets caught up like the week before the NCAA tournament starts, uh, where he actually knows more of the NBA game and just kind of tells yeah, it how absolutely. it is. But I, Barkley I think those guys are last. Barkley is a terrible. All these guys are terrible college analysts. I know TNT and TBS expanded. I think it's great. You get all the games now. But they they got to find some college guys that know what they're talking about. And I, I generally love Charles Barkley. Um, when I was at UM, I went to a, a Suns heat game. Um, you know, they had the thing where they sold the tickets in the dorm for like 10 bucks, and we stayed up all night to get them. And Barkley made the whole thing worthwhile to me. During the commercial breaks, he was beating up the mascot, doing dances. <laughs> he, I think he had a. I think in that game he went for like 32 points, 16 rebounds, and eight assists on top of that. But I mean, he is just the consummate entertainer, <laughs> and I, I love I love his analysis. I remember one time, a couple of years back, I was having a little trouble sleeping, and there was some game on the West Coast. It was like I don't know Memphis versus somebody, and and uh, the halftime show came on, and Charles Barkley, they're like, Charles, what's your analysis game? He's like, I don't know how anybody's watching this at home. This is just terrible basketball. I, he's like, I changed the channel. <laughs> I said, wow. I'm sure TNT wasn't too happy with him, but that's some honest analysis. Um, I love it. Cause, you know, you, you, get the, you get the college coaches or the NFL coach. You get coaches that come and talk you know, usually and become, you know, the people that do the analysis. And they're so safe with how they talk about other people just so they possibly get hired again. Barkley is yeah. going to do this, and he knows he's going to do this. So he says whatever he wants. It, I think it's always interesting for, for me because he was the guy that did the, you know, I'm not a role model commercial. Um, but to me, I think he's one of the best role models that a kid could watch because, like you said, he had fun just playing the game, you know. That's what it's about. You get fun, you know. You come in, you take it serious when you need to, but at the same time, you're playing a game. If you mess around with the mascot a little bit, it's not gonna make, you know, it's not gonna win or lose you a game. It's just gonna make it a little bit more entertaining. So I think, I think he's absolutely a blast to watch, and I love that he's unfiltered with what he says. Yeah, I agree too. All right, well, Chris, this has been an outstanding show. I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of things today, and I've, I've had a lot of fun um, talking to you. I hope folks at home. Yeah, I hope the folks at home that listen enjoy it as well. Is there any any final thoughts as we we close out the show? Uh, uh no, I don't have. That's pretty much it. Um, I'm just excited to see what happens in Game of Thrones tonight. So I got that recorded and ready to go. So that's 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 I'm shifting from the sports to my nerd my nerd side now. We can't get Cam. Cam used to be a regular participator on these podcasts when we did them last year. We can't get Cam on one of the shows because he will re- absolutely refuses to even. Miss Game of Thrones, so <laughs> I, I I might adjust the the timing on these in the future, but for now Sunday evenings is when we're going to do them, and we'll we'll see if we can get some more guests and some more uh, State of the staff on. Chris, thanks so much again for joining. It's been good talking to you. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate you having me on. All right, you have a good evening. Thanks. You too. All right. <laughs>